Welcome to Weird Sounds, an audio companion to the Boston Art Book Fair and Boston Center for the Arts. I'm your host, Oliver Mack. And I'm also your host, Randy Hopkins. Oliver and I are the co-founders of the Boston Art Book Fair, which has brought us into contact with an incredible array of artists and creative thinkers. We want to share some of these conversations with you. And that's exactly why we started Weird Sounds, as a podcast to document the ways that people are making art all around us these days. We have so many questions for artists because we love hearing about the ideas and images, inspirations and aspirations behind their practices. And we know you will too. Hey, Oliver, who are we talking to this week? Well, this week, Randy, we have an incredible guest. We're talking with Kathleen Sloboda, one half of Drawdown Books. She's a great educator publisher, and graphic designer. Let's take a look right now. I can't wait. Welcome. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Kathleen Sloboda, amazing publisher. Hello, Brandy and Oliver. (laughs) (laughs) Whoops, that was a pretty lame thing, but I'm going to let you introduce yourself too. Yes. So my name is Kathleen Sloboda. I am the co-founder and design director of Drawdown Books, which is uh, an independent publisher and a project that I began with my partner, Christopher Sloboda, as well as a bookseller. Uh, So we curate titles from other uh, artist book publishers and other designers, as well as things that don't have a commercial market, but are of interest to graphic designers and typographers. I'm also the primary in an illustration studio called Glue Kit, um, which does editorial illustrations for you know, magazines around the world, Um, basically every single magazine you've ever heard of, we've probably done an illustration for, as well as uh, some of the bigger companies like Apple and Google and Facebook and commissions for a range of different artists, uh, publishers as well. And then my partner and I are both educators. So I teach at the Rhode Island School of Design in the graphic design department, as well as at Boston University and recently at the University of Connecticut. Um, And in addition to that, we do have a freelance graphic design practice as well. Wow. <laughs> Randy, and you, th- you thought you were busy. That's uh, absolutely incredible how much you're able to, f- to fit into one, one breath of air. That was amazing. <laughs> That was like ghost. Well, thank you. Oh, how did you how did you get started? Yeah. Uh, so my background is actually in archives. I went to library school after I finished a degree in history, and I was really interested, particularly in oral history traditions. And I went to the University of British Columbia, which has a special program for First Nations librarians, looking at oral collections and orality in addition to textual archives. So I got my MLIS, which which is my official library (laughs) degree, as well as a master's in archival studies. Um, And I came back to the East Coast and I was an archivist at the Beinecke Book Library at Yale for about uh, five years. And while I was there, I met my partner, Christopher Sloboda, who was uh, the director of graphic design at the Yale University Art Gallery. And together we began, he basically was doing illustrations at that time and I just started helping him out. And eventually that practice became so successful that I left to do that full time. Well, he kept working at Yale. And then maybe in 2013, 2014, we were contacted by faculty at RISD about teaching a course at RISD. And that's how we started teaching. And everything is sort of like spun out from opportunities and inspirations. You know, I think a lot of people who become active in artist book publishing may have backgrounds as students when they were maybe making zines or 
you know, we're, we're art artists in high school or college. And then connecting that to a practice as a professional is always sort of the key that opens things up. So definitely uh, for me, that that's true as well. I'm sort of building on a background of making zines when I was in high school, as did my partner. Um, and so that's really where our interest in artist book publishing comes from. It's something deeply rooted that we've been doing for 20, 20, 30 years at this point. And Drawdown is an extension uh, of that love of artist books and zines. That's so cool. I want to say your, but your your real background is what is more. I mean, if it's history and it's library sciences, like where did the visual piece? How did you develop like the visual piece of your- that was. That was really through meeting Christopher. I have to say, you know, I was in my mid-20s before I even thought about graphic design. Mm. (laughs) You know, I was really interested in the book as an artifact, as the content of the book. But I did feel like I love being around books. I love thinking about books and talking about books and uh, the idea that they are carriers across time of knowledge and ideas is really significant to me. But making images as a practice was something I wasn't as sort of avidly pursuing until I met Christopher. And then, you know, we would be making commercial illustrations, but we'd also be doing all these little artist projects together just for fun um, for lots of different arts magazines um, during the early aughts. And that was really how we spent all our free time. And that led to actually one of the publications that we first did with Drawdown. It was collecting together all of the sort of art art projects that we've been doing. So it was kind of like a zine of your own work. Yeah. So it's called Glue Kit Made Photographs. And that collects together 10 years of projects that we'd been doing um, that, you know, a lot of the small artist magazines don't, don't actually end up, you know, remaining in print very long or being discoverable once they go out of print. And so this was a way to collect our work together into sort of a, a unified package. And one of the things we've noticed with our practice now over time is that oftentimes we'll do these sort of capsule collections looking backwards and sort of collecting everything together and giving it a context before we move on to like a new phase of work that we're doing. So one of our recent publications for Drawdown was collecting together posters we've been doing for artist book fairs for the past 10 years. And one thing I've noticed is that we haven't been making posters (laughs) for the last couple of book fairs we've done. And I thought sometimes it's almost like putting together the work allows us to to sort of see that as a, a like a, a whole body of work and then move on to something new. Um, and I think for me as someone who's interested in history and archives, documenting what we've done is really important. It's sort of anchoring that in time becomes really important. That's super cool. Is that something that you share with Christopher? Is there are there places where your practices are really distinct still at this point? Well, I would say we've been together for 15 years <laughs> and we do nearly everything together. We we co-teach, we teach together, we do drawdown together, we do glue kit together. Uh, most of the projects that we take on, we do together, the freelance design projects, we curate things together. So it's really sort of our personalities have merged and mingled to such a point. I mean, I will say, I think Christopher has a much more traditional background in graphic design and is really interested in type design. So that that's an interest that I support, but I don't have the the 
depth of his knowledge and background in that. And then I have a strong interest in sort of indigenous art and art by women. I did a project called Women of Graphic Design for about six years online. And I'm really interested in sort of highlighting um, the practices of people in graphic design who haven't been sort of uh, included in the history of graphic design. So thinking about vernacular design as problematic as that term vernacular can be, but practiced by people who maybe have not been in a traditional mold, as well as visual communication sort of prior to the, the Western European idea that we kind of see that dominates historical discourse. So that that's sort of, I'm, I'm pulling on those threads a lot when I'm pulling things for, for work for us to share. Um, but we're, you know, both interested in like graphic design history and design books and art books. We both like performance art. So a lot of our curating tends to be along the same lines. And we work so closely on the graphic design projects. I'm more detail oriented. So I'll do a lot of like the, the fine detail things. I do a lot of the writing and editing. Christopher does a lot of like the large graphic identity, um, but then I'll pull through and do all the detailed work to make the, to execute everything. That sounds like an incredible combination of, of skills and interests. Cause I can't think of any uh, graphic designers that would want to sit and look back at their work. Mm. Uh, so you definitely need an archivist <laughs> to be, to actually, you know, sell people on that idea to actually like spend time combing over the work that you probably hate at this moment. Yeah, I would say uh, I think the way that I think about design as I think about it as a historical piece of work. And I'm also really interested in ephemera and how that documents life. Because so often when historians construct ideas about, you know, what what was important, it's based on the publications, the evidence. So those, those things that are less sort of uh, solidified, the more ephemeral materials, those can often sort of trace the activities of people whose who's the documentation of their work isn't as present in those, those archives. So that's part of my interest as well. And thinking about the way oral and non-textual work can kind of be threaded through and supplement print, print is also really important to me. So that, how, like, say an example of that. I'm curious, I'm trying, I'm kind of trying to picture that in my life. Okay, so um, like in the public culture, uh, a lot of the the way that it's translated is through um, these tied knots. And there's a way of reading the knots and the physical materiality of objects that is sort of supplementary to the printed work that exists so that these are things that will pass down generationally, but won't necessarily, like the way that they're meant to travel is to be changed by each generation's voice and the implementation of that voice. So, so what's interesting is, you know, when you think about text, that's meant to sort of become locked in. And as much as there's appropriation of that text or, or tweaks to that text, it's meant to sort of make it static so that it will persist over time. Whereas orality allows for and embraces the shifts that can happen through the the, the retelling of tales. So I think that becomes really important that those that then when that that tale travels, it actually is fed through the different generations. So each of those sort of impacts the way that it's retold in a way that the text doesn't necessarily have that that sort of reshaping as it passes through. That's really that's that is really beautiful. That's that. diametrically opposed to how we're all, you know, uh, I guess uh, told or I guess how we intuitively think about uh, books in general, but it, it's just more of a um, it's 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 a it's like a way of thinking about it that preceded 
written language. Yes. And I think what's interesting is thinking about the way the text, the printed text can also become more fluid. Like there are ways that I think you can embrace the ideas that I'm talking about within text traditions, but typically it's not the way that we see text being used. So that's one thing that I'm, I guess I'm, I'm interested in thinking about and considering and, and, and feeding into the work that we share at Drawdown. Yeah, I mean, that feeds into ideas about technologies too, right? And like also like what, what is carried on, what gets lost in mm-hmm. the time process and how that changes. I am so interested in speaking as an archivist, the digital age, you know, in terms of preservation, the grappling with how how social culture will be documented over time. There's already such gaps in knowledge just because I think people think, oh, my work is online. It's saved. It's preserved. It's like so much more fragile online than it is in print form. Like we have, you know, the Gutenberg Bible, we have things that have existed from the 14th century, but digital objects created in like the early 80s, they're, they're almost impossible to read um, if, unless your work is with like an institution where it's being carried forth and there's a preservation mandate, you know, the work that the Library of Congress is collecting. A lot of that sort of um, generative activity, there's not a plan for it. And it's, I mean, even if looking back at like the early web, there's already these gaps. And I, I mean, as someone who's interested in sort of um, subcultures and the way non-dominant culture functions, I see those gaps as being really, really scary and sad. And I'm always really happy, like with Paul's project, where there's a documentation of what's going on in the web in print form, that there are those efforts being made because there's already sort of this, these, these holes that are, are, are happening, you know, for those of us that look backward, <laughs> thinking about the, the recent past as history. <laughs> here, here for people who look backwards. <laughs> That's me. I really miss the fact that my entire archive of my gallery that was a 10 year, I mean, we probably had one of the first like art gallery websites like ever. And it is lost as far as I know, like lost to humanity, a terrible loss. Uh, so that, and I have a feeling that the 35 Google docs that I created last week are probably also going to go lost to humanity. So my entire intellectual product is, uh, feels very vulnerable. You need an archivist, Randy. I do. <laughs> Beyonce has one. I think you're probably about due. Yeah, I think so too. Or at the very least, a records manager. Those are helpful too. Yeah. Or a backup hard drive. How did you lose your whole website? What are you not able to pay GoDaddy? <laughs> no, some extremely helpful person tried to simplify it at some point as it got messier and messier. So it was a good effort, but it... It all, yeah, never mind. That's another story for another day. Well, do you think it's worthwhile? For you, it's definitely worthwhile to look back on that archive. Yeah. And the artists. No, it was really incredible. Someday, I don't know, but I really think it's gone. Anyways, that is a story for another day, but it's it, it's a regret. I don't have that many regrets. Well, I think, Randy, you know, it, it seems anecdotal, but I think it's really, when you think about just all the, the art galleries, all of the spaces, you know, all of the things that are independent, basically, that aren't associated with big preservation efforts and all of the, those those efforts that haven't been printed, but were sort of existing online, evaporating. I think we could see a real cultural loss. Yeah. 
you know, and I love the the internet archive, but I don't know, <laughs> maybe I'm the only one who goes back there and looks up people's websites. It's all broken links. And half the time it's broken content. Like you, as much as it's a good thing, it's, it's, it's not a, a fulsome resource for people. Yeah, for sure. I'm going to have to do something about this. <laughs> Would you say part of uh, Drawdown's mission is to uh, be be a spreader of of those ephemeral documents? I think to some extent, at least as it pertains to graphic design and typography, like some of the materials that we particularly like to solicit and find ways of of, of you know carrying in our our shop are things that are more ephemeral. So like exhibition catalogs for small galleries that have uh, design shows. Uh, catalogs that designers are independently making, um, publications that designers are doing for local communities or local schools. We're really interested in graphic design programs that are publishing because that also is like, you know, there's all these silos of activity and nobody really knows what's going on, but there's so much interesting research and activity going on in these design programs. So we've really seen Drawdown as a way to sort of platform an exchange between what's going on around the world. And that, that also ties into our own interest of sort of open opening up what we know and what we what is available to us. But yeah, I think, you know, to some extent, our last two big projects, um, we did a, a book called Hardcore Fanzine, Good and Plenty, 1989 to 1993. Um, and that had sort of an archival Im- impulse to it where it was a hardcore zine that had been published for a few years, had a kind of discrete number of issues. A lot of them were out of print. So it was a full run of those released, but we used that as a way to look at changing technology during this sort of desktop publishing boom and to look at the technology shift that happened because it was a really good case study. You know, it was started by this high school student and he did it as he went to college. His father was a, a pressman, so he had access to offset printing. For, for So like the, the scale of the zine became more ambitious just in the, the several issues that were published and the materiality of it changed. And it, it became just a really excellent tool to talk about what was going on um, in terms of like the tradition of, you know, DIY Xerox publishing that was really sort of, you know, everyone's tool who is in the punk scene to begin with. But then as like people had access to computers, what that allowed them to do. So in addition to, you know, printing the full run of that, we had graphic designers and design historians come and talk about the work and place it in context. And that I think is my, my, my interest and Christopher's is sort of looking at artifacts and culture and thinking about them through the lens of graphic design so that people who maybe aren't thinking about design and typography can appreciate that, but it also helps graphic designers and typographers see this work that maybe hasn't been included in the history of graphic design as worthy of um, consideration. So one of our points with that project and one of the texts that we wrote about it, we said, you know, every zine maker is a designer. So, you know, from the, the seventh grade you know, kid in their room making a zine. He's a graphic designer, even though every designer is not a zine maker. And so that to us is really important to honor that tradition because not only do so many people who, you know, are creative in making publications as as, as kids grow up and have an interest in graphic designer become graphic designers, but even for those who don't, they're still working with type and images and layout and thinking about these formal structures. And I think to not recognize that as an important sort of part of our community is just a real loss for everyone. So, you know, that's been my little battle cry for a while now. And I think is really 
I think important as we continue to think about like our, our future projects um, at Drawdown. Yeah, just looking through the past of everything that you guys have put out, it's that's absolutely staggering. It's it's really interesting that you you bring up punk as like the this touchstone for where design starts for a lot of people because I see that through pretty much it's like a continuous vein through every artist that I, I that resonates with me probably because I see part of my past in in their their same shared story. Well, what's so interesting is uh, as I teach students. I've also realized that so many students who are like in the, the next generation are as influenced by sort of club culture and dance culture. Like we see a lot of designers, like the whole acid graphic design movement is really spawned by like people who are making the, the, the designs for club nights. And I think at the same time, I really got interested in sort of the design for um, these cassette tapes and mixtapes. Like basically there's so many ways that people can be like motivated within subcultures because there's a need to design something that they just become, you know, fluent with the tools and they start thinking about their designing. So I think that we'll see other subcultures outside of punk, you know, also become part of that sort of world of graphic design. But I, I do think like subcultures are like a rich, rich breeding ground, just because if you're, if you're having any sort of event or any sort of, you know, thing that you're pulling people together for, you want to be promoting it and they're, you're designing things to promote it, to, to share with people. There's collateral, there's scenes, there's tote bags, there's all the things that go around the subculture. So lots of pathways in. Yeah. That's cool. Is there something that you see? I mean, cause music that makes so much sense and punk and that kind of do it yourself aesthetic mm -hmm. there, all that makes so much sense. When you say, I mean, maybe the food, maybe food culture is another place that's just exploding with like visual and experimental. What's so interesting, Randy, is I will say that is the interest of so many students I work with is food. And you see this sort of, I think I was just reading the news the other day and there was like a, uh, like a, a piece about all of the different um, food zines that were being published. So I do think that that's sort of a, a rich um, environment as well. Yeah. Also very strong community. I mean, it's a really like music, like the way people connect with each other. It's really about, about you know, artists like, and also connection. Well, everything we do is, is drive for connection for us to share a part of ourselves. So that's why Randy and I do the art book fair at all, just because we're tired of uh being lonely 100 percent. that is literally the story i tell people about drawdown too is you know i was doing freelance work for seven years by that point we went to the new york it's like a story that you hear over and over we went to the new york art book fair we thought oh my god this is amazing all these people who love books you know everybody here is just so interesting they're making interesting where it felt like entering a room where everybody was just vibrating on the same level and we were thinking we have no community where we are we can join this community at, that gathers together an international array of publishers and it, it is a way of finding like-minded people but what i think is absolutely great about our book fairs is that you don't have to feel like you're already part of the community there's a book for everyone at an art book fair you know like i i think from a, a child in kindergarten to an elderly person who has the most esoteric interests like there's just such a range of people. And I think that's the beauty of it is that there's no sort of template for, for people exhibiting, for publishing. It really is um, just everybody doing 
what they like, but coming together around the form of the book. And I think that's, that's just like a really, really amazing, um, structure and it's books so they aren't scary it's all it's all of us introverts and like social anxiety people or whatever right finding like community what's so great too is like it's in multiples right so nothing is too precious like even yeah. the the most uh rare book at the table when there's rare things they're still made in multiples like they're meant to be handled they're meant to be read so you don't have that sort of distance that occurs where you go into a gallery and you're not supposed to touch anything. And it feels very different from you. I think when you go to an art book fair, you're encouraged to take things. You're encouraged to feel things. And I think that really makes you realize and think. I've talked to so many people. Hey, I can do this. Like you're, you're talking to other people about their work and you realize just how possible it is to participate in, in this sort of book economy. So that I think is the real loveliness of the art book fair. And I do think they're pollinating events, you know, like you go to one, you want to go back to your <laughs> school or your neighborhood and you can start a small one, <laughs> you know, a one day one, but every, you know, it's a, it's a mark of a big city too, that they have a large book fair. It's become this real cultural gathering and a cultural force too, even though COVID interrupted us for two years. I think it's been remarkable just to see the gathering start to happen again, because it is such a powerful force to your point, Oliver, that brings people together. I mean, it's the chance to move away from screens and really, you know, get a chance to meet people, really get a sense of them and, and, and build like personal relationships. hundred <laughs> percent. I always, I always see creative directors from, you know, brands that I work with just prowling it's like strutting through, strutting through the art book fairs, just trying to like either like hire someone or just steal an idea. <laughs> so a uh, couple, couple more questions about Drawdown though. So um, I actually just realized you put out that Cleon Peterson book. Yeah, that that's our, our only hardcover book. And we're very proud of that book. We'd love to do others in the series. It's meant to be um, a series, but you know, part of that came from, we really just responded so strongly to Cleon's work and could not believe that nobody had done a publication with him. <laughs> so, and it still remains the only book about his work um, and is has been out of print now for about four or five years. Um, and it's tiny, which was, you know, a product of our ability to fund the, the project, but also part of our interest was in making something that we'd be able to ship around the world because we knew that there was really strong interest in his work globally. And it was right around the time he was really starting to, you know, take his, his fine art practice a little bit more seriously and do that full time. Cause up till it was, we, we reached out to him right around the time he was leaving Shepherd Fairy studio. So it was like at this really fantastic time. And we were able to, to get that book into almost all of the different gallery shows that he did for the next two years. So it was a really nice sort of synergy, but he's, He's a phenomenal artist and the work, I mean, he deserves like a coffee table book. <laughs> if we could have afforded that, we would have given that to him. But we also, you know, especially when we were starting out, we were really interested in creating things that were affordable for people so that students as well as people on more limited budgets could afford them. And so that we could send them around the world and, and sort of have this more global outreach. Because for first someone who's doing a lot of distribution, we've realized that often the, the heavier the book is, the bigger book is, the much more limited its outreach will be just because, you know, 
it costs a lot of money to ship things. Um, could could there be a possible uh, situation where you're a publisher that just releases like the print file for it and they have to like <laughs> print it themselves at their home or something like that? I don't think, we, you know, we've been talking with, um, there's this group called Library Stack and they do sort of academic PDF EPUBs, but we just haven't had the time to con- do the conversion and set set up our books for that. I don't think we're ever going to reach that point. I mean, part of our interest as graphic designers is in the form of the book and, and like, you know, all of the formal qualities. And we pay a lot of attention to like everything from the paper stock to the, the weight of the cover. So I just don't see us doing that, but I'm sure I've seen the file hijacked. So, uh, it's possible that some, uh, activist hacker (laughs) will make that available at some point. (laughs) I also really, uh, am psyched that you guys had, uh, published Kristen Liu Wong's, uh, work as well. Yes. So we had like a, um, a real interest in these series that we were developing, especially when we first started out. So we've sort of migrated away from some of the early illustrative and um, more typographic work, or more photographic work, I would say, like we developed all these different series. And now we're more interested in larger long form writing projects, like more traditional books. But we did do this great black and white series, um, monocolor, really economic to produce, uh, that allowed us to work with a lot of amazing designers and illustrators and artists around the world. And that was just, I think both Cleon and Chris and Louis Wong are examples of us reaching out to people who had no idea who we were. And that's how we've used Drawdown as a platform to reach out to people whose work we like. Um, and we've just really drop in out of the blue and ask if they want to work with us and tell them, you know, how we can work with them, which is usually we give them a split of the print run. We do a run of about a hundred and they, they can get some to sell and that's, we'll cover all the printing and publishing costs. So, you know, just lay everything out. Uh, if someone's interested, we can hop on with them. And if not, no hard feelings. We know it's not for everyone, but we definitely have realized what an opportunity it is since building Drawdown to use it as a way to reach out to people who we admire, uh, whose work we think is incredible. <laughs> and, you know, if we're publishing your work, it really is because we think your work is incredible and we want to share it with the world. And I love tabling and telling people about the artists and like, you know, giving their bios and talking about their work. And also, you know, with Kristen Louis Wong's work, look at her work, you know, her other printed work, because this is really supposed to be hyper colored. Like we've taken it into this monochromatic world, but you should really also see the other work that she's doing. And to me, I think that's one of the things I really enjoy is I think it's the librarian in me. I really love connecting artists with other artists, artists with publishers, you know, an audience with art, but I love connecting one person's like of a book with a larger world of, of art or graphic design, you know, sort of opening up um, a vista for them. So that those series really allow me to do that. Um, and I've really enjoyed curating those over the years. I, I really hope we get to continue to build on them. But, you know, we find because we are do, doing so many things, we have to kind of pick and choose as we determine where we're going next. And it's always sort of um, consistent with how much time that we have and, and what we can budget. Do, do the artists you select kind of reflect where publishing has taken you? Because I noticed that, so you got two LA artists and then is Jean Julian Paris? He was based in Paris and I, now he's in LA. Yeah, he moved to LA mid, 
a few years ago, I think. But actually, most of the people in that series, I think there's a few people we know, but most people are just people whose work we admired and we thought would fit within the series. Um, and it's it's really been amazing for us how positively responsive people have been to sort of us reaching out and out of the blue and just saying, we enjoy your work. We'd like to, to work with you. And we're always, you know, happy to show examples and samples of the, the work, but with Cleon Peterson as well, we, we did not know Cleon Peterson. We DM'd him on Instagram and we said, we really like your work. We'd love to publish your book. And I think for us, it's really like no fear. We will just reach out to anyone and see if they want to work with us. It really, and it's it's something I tell students I work with as well. You know, it doesn't hurt to ask to reach out to people that you want to work with, to, to share your work with them and say, do you want to do a project together? This is what I'm thinking. It's a way to open a door of exchange. And to be honest, especially if you know, you're reaching out to someone and you know that they don't have a publication or a book, it, it may be just the thing that they're waiting for. And a lot of it is about timing, you know, where when you're reaching out to someone. Uh, I would say summertime, not a great time to reach out. Early fall, people are active, good time. 3 a.m., not a good time. Yeah. <laughs> not a good time to reach out with business proposals. <laughs> but I think you're totally right. I just You have to be fearless to, you know, be, make, make your make your publication happen, make your zine happen, make therefore your dream happen. That's how Randy and I linked up. I had heard about Randy and we never worked together. And I knew that Boston needed the art book fair. And Randy was the person that I needed to to hit up. So I DM'd her at 3am. <laughs> <laughs> That's the way it works. It's like, be fearless and have a tough skin. Be persistent. You know, if someone doesn't get back to you, no hard feelings. I'll just reach out the next time. So but that's a hundred percent true story though. And I'm a pretty soft touch, but really uh, my response was, have you been reading my mind? Because <laughs> I'm the person who went to the New York Art Book Fair all those years and thought that would be so amazing to do, but it seems like way out of the scope of something I can imagine pulling off. And Oliver is really great at saying you can do it. <laughs> Well, and the it's like, pretty helpful too. And the cyclorama is such an amazing space. Yeah. It really is the perfect space. And yeah, what what a great a great event that you guys have put together. Well, you've been part of it since the very beginning. And seriously, I think I really appreciate how supportive you are, not just to your students, not just to the artists that you reach out to with interest in their careers and in promoting them through amazing books and stuff, but just your colleagues too. I mean, I love how involved Drawdown is in the ecosystem at like all kinds of levels. So, yeah. Thanks, Randy. Yes, I'd love to mention the multiple uh, multiple formats symposium and conference. Yes, <laughs> because that will be a recurring event for for people in the tri-state New England area, um, which is a symposium on artist books, and it will be in March this year. So keep your eyes open for the call for that because it'll be another day of programming, in-person programming, and then a book fair at Boston University. Um, and so that's that's one way we can support other people's practices. <laughs> is organize events for them. Yeah, that's fantastic. And that the the initial one was amazing, even though uh, snow, <laughs> snow, pandemic. I, you guys had a few things going um, 
whatever against you, but no, that's, that's an amazing addition to, to what's going on here in the book world too, art book world. Well, I like to think about the fairs too, as different scales. So, so that you can kind of see how you can have a starter fair for, you know, maybe someone just starting out, maybe who's done a few zines and then they can work their themselves up to the sort of larger fairs that really take, you know, you have to be organized with, all of the sort of things that go on behind the table um, and how, how to sort of run a business, I think, to be exhibiting at some of the larger fairs. So, you know, having uh, these sort of steps that you can take to get oriented and get your, you know, feel really confident by the time that you're applying for some of the bigger regional or international fairs, I think is really important. So yeah, there's, there's lots of different ways that we can help people get more involved in, and build the community of participants as well as people who sort of come to the fair as supporters. I think that's an excellent way of thinking about it. We, we actually always saw ourselves as a starter. Uh, cause we, <laughs> we, had, I've, we had never done anything like that previously, but I think we're getting some pretty good feedback lately, Randy, that, uh, <laughs> people, people see us as luxurious compared to, uh, I think with ones. the multi-day, the multi-day <laughs> fairs, the four-day fairs, three-day fairs, those are the big fairs, right? So, uh, single-day fairs, those are starter fairs where it's like an afternoon, an hour. <laughs> There's some really micro fairs out there. Um, those are smaller, but I would say Boston is probably in the top five of the biggest big fairs. Yep. We'll take the top five, Randy. Top We're five. Top five, dead or alive. <laughs> Biggie Smalls is number one. Nas, uh, Rakim, Tupac's probably in there. Light it in. No, it just shows how naive. I, we should have started with the one-day fair. Those we should have started as number one. We should have started as top three, if possible. <laughs> Super fun. I still have pictures of uh, the night before the first art book fair, like literally still painting the walls, like to try to get ready for everybody. So this has been a lot of fun. Oh, yeah. And I found uh, the Mills Gallery, which Randy uh, opened up for the first art book fair, has a, has a fridge behind the wall that is filled with alcohol. And that's what I found <laughs> yeah, that night before. Yeah, our exhibitors found that out. We didn't realize you had to lock the fridge before the before the art book fair. It wasn't the exhibitors, Randy. It was me the whole time. <laughs> oh, that was a lot of fun. It's always a lot of fun. So you're you're currently teaching, you're co-teaching with your partner, right? At, at RISD? At Boston University and RISD. I was fifty percent correct. Excellent. Yeah. Uh, are, do you, and you're you're putting a you're you're seeing a lot of incredible work come from your students right now, right? Yes, and and typically at RISD we've incorporated publishing into some of the the classes we've taught. So there's an outward public facing aspect. Uh, I teach like a experimental form making course. So it's really easy to integrate publishing um, into that. So we've printed on-demand publications as well as broadsides, and we'll we'll share those at um, artist book fairs. Uh, at Boston, we support the students. We, we actually have some thesis books we're, we're I'm cataloging now that just came from the master's program in graphic design. And then there's some zines that have been produced, but that's more sort of not through the classes that we're teaching, but students who are sort of interested in producing work and have integrated that into their, their studies. Um, sometimes we'll partner with them on, on, you know, helping them sort of have a distribution outlet and carry typeface specimens they've designed and things like that. So there's there's a way that it interfaces uh, with graphic design. And we carry a lot of publications that are designed by our colleagues as well at the different institutions we teach at. 
And we have BU students in the Boston Art Book Fair this year. We, I mean, we always love, that's also, there's a lot of layers represented there, a lot of levels of um, people just like getting their sea legs and people who've been doing it for a long time. That's always a lot of fun. We probably have a lot of generations in there of, um, of, of students and teachers who've worked together over the years too. Yeah, that's been one of the most exciting things for me over time is seeing students who started projects and have built them and are, you know, now peers (laughs) in the artist publishing world. Um, And certainly it seems it seems like people are very optimistic and everybody's going to start a press when they graduate. (laughs) Sometimes it takes a year or two to really get things, you know, solidified and like a plan of action. But I do know um, that participation at book fairs for the students has been phenomenal and they constantly talk about what an amazing experience it is at the Boston Art Book Fair when they've been able to table um, to meet people who eventually come into the program. It's been just a great way to develop, you know, relationships with with people who are interested in graphic design, as well as to meet all the other artist publishers and, and get ideas for their their schoolwork. So it's been just really terrific to have them participate in the fair. Super fun. So how do you clear the cobwebs? How do you clear your head over the summer so you get energy to come back to books? Well, this was supposed to be a break, a summer break, but actually uh, we were supposed to do the San Francisco Art Book Fair in 2020, uh, which is my hometown. So I was really excited to get back there. Um, And of course it was canceled. So this year when it when they announced they were going to hold it again, I was like, okay, we've got to head out there. So we were in San Francisco for two weeks um, in July doing some research at the Letterform Archive and Stanford Special Collections and the Aryan Press, like tried to really visit as many different studios and spaces, do research while we were out there for the fair. So that that was a, a really terrific trip for us. And I think that's one way that we clear the cobwebs is to travel. <laughs> Um, And then we were also at uh, Otis in Los Angeles for two weeks where we were designers in residence and we mounted a small one day art book fair with the students there. So that that was also a terrific event because it was just a really sort of consolidated two really intense two weeks of planning an art book fair with eight students and all the design work that goes into coming up with the visual identity and promoting it and, um, you know, really sort of creating an event for people that was memorable. So that was terrific. Um, really fun. And we'll be doing that again next year too. So the summertime is we, we try to travel, try to meet some more people, (laughs) um, but we're keeping busy with our, our book projects as well. You can see my cataloging uh, stack behind me there. Where did you guys do the, sh- the, the, the LA event? Uh, it was at the school. So at the Otis school of art and design. That's great. Yeah. LA, it seems limitless in terms of the, the amount of places where you could just have something where mad heads will show up. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's what I really love about we've part of the reason we were so interested in becoming active in our book fairs is because of the the potential to travel. So we've done some overseas fairs and I mean, we did one in the Netherlands in 2019 and it was just like, that is such a, a epicenter for graphic design that all these famous graphic designers are just walking through, you know, it was a like meet your heroes moment for us. Um, and that's been incredible. I mean, I think as I mentioned, travel is really important to us. So th- those times when we were able to go outside of the United States and sort of experience the fairs, you know, outside of the American context are really important. And they, they help shape our understanding of how our books are operating outside of the United States, too. Do you have distributors in Europe and Asia yet? 
Well, we have idea books in the Netherlands is like our, oh, our major partner. Um, and then we do sell directly to a couple of distributors in, um, in Asia, like banana fish books. We worked with a while ago. It, as our, publications have shifted. We've partnered with different people, but not, not a main distributor in Asia. I don't think you could do uh, better than idea books. I mean, damn. Yeah. I mean, they're the, I mean, they're the only, they're the only bookstore that's in Dover street market. I mean, geez, yeah. they're, they're a fashion brand at this point. It's incredible. And they have limitless taste. I should clarify. So there's two idea books. There's the idea books that are British that are like the really great oh, different. Uh, vintage books. Then there's a Dutch idea books, which is a distributor and they have maybe a, a less cool street. street oh, they're going to, I just but started they, some litigation right there. They're, they're very, they're awesome people. Um, love them a lot. And they do a lot of major distribution for independent publishers around the world. And especially for Asia. Yeah. They've been phenomenal support to us over the years. So I can't say enough about how wonderful they are, but I should clarify. It's, it's not the super cool idea books in London. No, it's the cooler one. That's, <laughs> yeah. we love, we love both of them here. Yeah. I mean, but I don't think the idea books in, in London would know me from Adam, but <laughs> I think they're just too, yeah, they probably would only carry your work if it was like, nudes of women in Ibiza <laughs> in the seventies. That's it. Yes. Yes, exactly. That's, that's their focus. And then hats with like one word on it. And celebrities like, let's not forget Winona Ryder. Yeah. They're trying, they're really trying to mine the Winona uh, vein deeply. <laughs> so, uh, is there a lot of, uh, is there still a lot of your time being taken up by glue kit projects? Yes. So that remains, I mean, the illustration world with the, the print media market shrinking has had definitely an impact on, on us, uh, but we maintain like a really good relationship with art directors, but that's the sort of work that will drop in out of the sky and we have like a day or two days, maybe a week to do a, a project. And so it, it's really unexpected and we can't really rely on sort of like long-term planning for that. So, um, but yeah, Blue Kit remains very active. We just, it's kind of like a less public part of our practice because it just, it's, it's really commercial. You know, it's much more client-based on what clients want. So not all of it is work that we're like, Oh, look at this. It's terrific. Uh, I mean, though I do, I do love the work that we do. I love being in the New York times. I love doing work for Newsweek and the wall street journal and LA times and Chicago, like great. To, you know, I love people sending me photos of our work that they've seen in the newspaper that day. So that's always, you know, great, but it's, it's sort of separate from the other work that we're doing. Definitely illustration and graphic design, you know, different sorts of relationships with the client. The commercial oh. side of work. Randy knows all about that. Sorry. I'm a, I'm a, uh, whatever I am, but know what's important too. And again, you know, there's room for all of that. I think room for all of it. And it really feeds off each other ultimately as well. Well, one thing that often comes up at book fairs is people are really excited to meet publishers, really excited to meet artists and, you know, are very curious about the nuts and bolts of how things operate. And I always do like to be very upfront that a lot of the publications that we do are subsidized by the work that we're doing, you know, as teachers, um, as educators, but as graphic designers, you know, having full-time jobs that we're 
this is how, you know, other people <laughs> do other things with their money. We like to make books and go to book fairs, you know, which isn't to, to say, I think that we have built drawdown into a pretty self-sustaining model at this point, but definitely for some of the bigger publications that we're producing, you know, we're writing grants, we're funding it ourselves, and that money doesn't necessarily come from the sale of, of our books necessarily. It comes sometimes from the book selling, but also from our full-time jobs. And most people that I know uh, who are in artist book publishing do have these hybrid practices. And I think it's it's quite normal to figure out or engineer a way that you can fund the books with other other work that you're doing. No yeah. shame. <laughs> now that's what we got to do too, to just get the fairs doors open. Yeah. And I think, I mean, for, to be fair, for people starting out, I don't think that's always that obvious, like what a crazy path it might be or how creative you actually have to be to get to a place that you probably can't actually imagine quite yet. Whatever. So it's great to see that modeled too. And I think that's why the fairs can be really important bridges for people because you can talk to people in a very personable one-on-one -on -one way about how they do things. And usually people are, are quite generous, but there's so much more to artist book publishing than just making the book. <laughs> you know, how do you distribute things? How do you publicize your work? Who are your partners? Like, how, how do you, you know, how do you sell online? What, what tools are you using? I think all of that, all of the sort of project project management part of it is things that you can learn really on the spot from conversations that you have with people. And those, those types of things are harder to do over email. So really when you have the ear of someone at a fair and, you know, you're just chatting, it can be so much more illuminating about how people are actually like, you know, operating. For sure. This is so great. You're so generous with your time. It's really, really fun to talk to you. Yeah, it's great. Uh, thanks so much for spending a little chunk of your afternoon with us. I think we're, we're hit, we hit our time limit for this episode. Didn't we? Great. Oh, it always goes so fast. We didn't get to ask you, wait, don't we have something we always we, ask you? What, what is that, Randy? Uh, I don't know. How could you forget? I think it? it just is. What is something you've learned recently? <laughs> oh, I think I wrote this down. Um, okay. So this is very technical, but I've been learning how to code open type features. So a little bit of Python, <laughs> um, but also Christopher has been doing a lot of, of lo reading about typeface design. So we've been talking a lot about how in common English, we have a lot of sayings that are based on typography, sort of like uppercase and lowercase. When we think of letters, it's actually the physical case that those letters were kept in. And that's why it's uppercase, lowercase. So, you know, little pieces of, of information like that. That's what I've learned lately. <laughs> Super cool. Both, I, both of them. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. I didn't know that. And I'm going to probably rack your brain for more uh, <laughs> information when I see you at the art book fair. The other thing is the saying out of sorts is typographic. Like you would be out of a sort of type. Oh. So that, that comes from typesetting as well. That I, I, never I, knew. I love Things etymology. I love sayings. I love language. Um, so it's always fun to kind of tease those things out. Nice. Those are going to show up in our show notes. We'll, <laughs> we'll dig a little deeper into the out of sorts. I love it. Well, Kathleen, thanks for talking with us. And um, Randy will be sending you your check for $5,000. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, we will circle back with you on that. But no, we'll just enjoy the rest of the 
summer. We will see you soon in the Boston Art Book you Fair. You too. But, Good yeah. luck with the fair organizing. I know it's a lot of work and, you know, but everybody will love it. Oh, <laughs> love so our nice. book fairs. And it's so important, the work that you're doing. I just want, you know, know that it's it's very, very appreciated by all of the exhibitors who, you know, are given a place. It's very important to us. So thank you wow. for all your hard work. And Oliver, it was so nice to chat with you. I don't think I've had the opportunity before. So it's really nice to spend a little time this afternoon with you. Great talking with you as well. I'm usually uh, I'm usually lurking behind the DJ table at these events so, <laughs> and, and running away for coffee. Or raiding the refrigerator. Or raiding the refrigerator and <laughs> taking a nap. All right. Well, thank you. We'll, uh, yeah. we'll, we'll see you soon. Great. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.